This is the Roaring Elephant podcast for the 3rd of April 2018. A podcast about Apache Hadoop and the surrounding ecosystem for anybody working with or investigating big data and advanced analytics. My name is John, and here's my co-host, Dave. Good morning, Dave. Hello, John. How are you? I'm very good. We're recording an episode. It's a news episode. It is, and we have some news to talk about. Isn't that just magical? (laughs) Do we ever run out of stuff to talk about? Um, No, I think is the answer to that. So, Just to prove the point, we had a list of, what was it, uh, 10 items, and we cut it down to four now. (laughs) Yeah, and we're probably still going to run long anyway. But there we go. You're going for half an hour. Okay. Uh, But before we started the news... We're going to talk about our last episode, apparently. No, well, no, you're reading it in chronological st- style, but we're going to talk about the... We have yes. a promo code. <laughs> so 25% off tickets to the DataWorks Summit. Coming up soon. It's only a matter of weeks away. The uh, Data DataWorks Summit in Europe. 25% off your price for a ticket using the code ROAR25. That's R O A R. Two five, all one word, all uppercase. Not sure if the case matters, but try it all in uppercase just in case. <laughs> well, See, if you try lowercase, case, it doesn't work. Try again in uppercase. Yeah, indeed. So yes. Anyway, thank you to Hortonworks for sponsoring the promo code and letting us uh, indeed. Uh, give it to our listeners. I need indeed. to get some Dixie lessons. Uh, talking about the summit, uh, our next episode actually after this one will be our, uh, how do you say that, preview of the Berlin summit where we're going to go over the uh, uh, calendar, the agenda I should say, and pick out the things that we think will be interesting and uh, plan Yeah, out. maybe give, give, some, give some advice for people that uh, maybe haven't been to it before, mm-hmm. it's their first time. Or, uh, you know, just want general hints and tips for uh, how to get the most out of what should be a great event. Yeah, so uh, stay tuned for more information on that. And uh, with that out of the way, our first article that we kind of jointly put on the docket here is actually a nice continuation of our previous episode where we had some kind of, uh, oh, let's call it in-depth, deep psychoanalytical talk about <laughs> big data tracking and ethics around that and uh, yeah. lo and behold our recording had just finished or a big news story hit the interwaves and that's Indeed. the story about facebook losing a little bit of data yeah well i, I wouldn't they didn't lose it they they <laughs> exposed it i would say um, there's there's a whole thing about I mean, da- data can I suppose data can be stolen, but this data wasn't stolen, in, at least in my view. This data was exposed. Uh, let's let's get some of the terminology a little bit more accurate. But yes, the whole story around uh, Cambridge Analytica and uh, their potential um, to influence the, uh, the the Trump campaign and all sorts of other weird and wacky things and strange. I mean, there's. There's the there's the data story, and then there's obviously the uh, the story around all the other strange things they got involved in um, to uh, to twist and turn things around. But we're going to sort of talk a bit about two major articles. I think one is the sort of the Ars Technica 
um, article. Well, there were a whole bunch of articles on this stuff, so yeah, we just yeah, picked yeah. two out. I mean, I picked this Ars Technica one because it was the most recent one I found. It also had a little bit of an update. That's yeah. why I picked this one. But it goes through a reasonable amount of detail on actually, it's not just huge scaremongery. It actually goes into a reasonable amount of detail about what you know what the actual mm-hmm. data leakage was all about how it happened um and it it as you say it kind of leans back to um us our, our sort of our podcast last week when it was talking about um the sort of accuracy of certain um certain things in terms of profiles and facebook likes and that sort of thing the ability to predict for example skin color with 95% accuracy and sexual orientation with 88% accuracy and affiliation to um, a political party with 85% accuracy and things like that. So it very closely tallies with the sort of conversations we were having last week. But of course, this is uh, it's all far more real world uh, and far less theoretical. Yeah, but see, my issue with uh, the whole escalating news controversy, let's say, is did anything bad between and not the moral bad, but uh, let's call it more of the illegal bad actually take place? Because again, I'm pretty certain I don't know all the details and ins and outs of this story, but to me, it reads like these guys had a connection to the to the Facebook data. And they mm-hmm. use the Facebook data to do stuff. So, yeah. So, on that side, I think you're right. Like, they, they, I think you could say possibly they exploited an unexpected loophole. And I think some of the things, like, you know, certain data was, um, was expected to be used for quote-unquote academic purposes when it clearly wasn't used for academic purposes (laughs) so you could you know that in itself is a of questionable legality at best um but as far as the data is concerned i think you're probably right they probably were they were at the very least operating within the uh uh, the gray zone between the black and the white Mm -hmm. um of course, the, there's the other part of this. There's a link right at the top of the article, which actually talks about some of their uh, other um, alleged uh, interactions, including <laughs> uh, using honey traps, fake news campaigns, mm-hmm. uh, ex-spies, fake bribery, and hiring prostitutes. Um, pretty sure most of that is illegal. Uh, but yeah, on the pure data side... Depends on the country. Um, well, true, true. But on the pure data, I think you're right. There's there's some questionable legality here, but you know, and, and who's Facebook side users was supposed well, to be the, the the guarding side here? Is it the fault that Facebook didn't keep the door closed enough, or was it the fact that uh, the the Cambridge guys um, found the loophole and exploited it? Yeah, I mean, if I find a penny on the street, I'm not allowed to spend it. Oh. <laughs> yeah, God, man. Well, yeah. I, as I say, I think I think things like the, the sort of the loopholes that they they exploited, um, things like the this data will be used for academic research and all that sort of thing. But essentially, people gave their data away to mm-hmm. a certain extent. They didn't understand who they were giving it away to. 
okay. They didn't understand why they were giving it away. But they, you know, 500 people... Uh, well, sorry, let me make sure I get the number, uh, the number right. Um, no, sorry. So um, 270,000 Facebook users took an online personality quiz, and that allowed them to access... Uh, the data around each of those, pers- they, they literally, those 270,000 people, by filling in that online personality questionnaire, mm-hmm. granted um, the via the Facebook AB- APIs um, access to the authorized user's friends. And yep. that gave them the ability to see information about 50 million Facebook users. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's the way these things work. You know, when you have a an application on your Android phone um, that you sort of install or you update, it says you know these are the uh, these are the permissions that this application will allow you access to your media, access to your camera, um, and most people don't pay attention to that and just click yes, yes, yes. I want the application because it you know will send me funny cat videos twenty four seven. Yeah, but I, I read a reply somewhere that uh, they weren't able to actually access those 50 million other Facebook users' data, but by looking at those 270,000, they could see whatever those 270,000 had said or reshared from those 50 million others. Yeah. So there the discussion became, okay, when I share something private with you, Mr. Dave, are you allowed to, t- to take that piece of private information and tell it somebody else yeah are you are you not i mean if i share it with you i kind of trust you to do the right thing whatever you think is the right thing and that's why i wouldn't trust my private stuff with something like facebook sure i'll tell them that my favorite color is green or blue whatever the day is (laughs) but i'm not going to tell them i'm going holiday i I certainly wouldn't even do that because sometimes that's used as a as a very poor security question (laughs) so yeah uh, yeah, the, the, the security questions are a bad, bad thing anyway. So. <laughs> well, we could do a whole episode on that. <laughs> yeah, but we should put it behind a paywall with a security question uh, login. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway, um, anyway, I found actually a nice segue from my article on this subject to your article, because my yeah. article was written by a person called Timothy B. Lee. Yes, who's not the Tim... <laughs> Berners-Lee, <laughs> that we all know and love, inventor has of the World Wide different Web. picture anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, indeed, indeed. And uh, and so the the article that um, that I particularly like on this um, it is, and there are a number of them talking about uh, Tim Berners-Lee's comments, and you know, he's he's obviously got a um, a view on this. You know, he's um, he talks about the fact that in some cases he he feels very uh, disappointed about the things that people are doing with the platform that that he he invented or helped invent um but uh, there are a number of things that he said on on twitter and i definitely encourage people to take a look at his uh, his twitter feed but you know the one of the core comments that he's made is that these are yeah, the, the data that was exposed through uh, through bugs, through loopholes. Um, bugs can cause damage, but bugs are created by people and can be fixed by people. So, yes, this has you know potentially exposed lots of people's data um, that when they weren't expecting it. 
but people need to understand that when they when they share data on these kind of platforms they can't necessarily always control exactly where it goes now there is a huge variety of legislation that's trying to help with this and trying to make things safer for people but there will always be loopholes there will always be bugs in software um, as long as there is software so you you can you can hope that people will um, always try and do the right thing, but you can't always, you know, guarantee that the right thing will be done. I think you can pretty much guarantee the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> but that's just me. <laughs> okay, Eeyore. Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh. anyways, it's Fair interesting enough. that this happens. I mean, it's going to be a, a good step forward for people taking more care of their privacy and their yeah. data it's gonna it shake people it awake again and i think this is just one part of the whole digitization and globalization of uh, the environment of uh, yeah, where we live basically and people need to get i uh, get slapped a couple of times uh, before we learn how to deal with this new reality yeah yeah but, uh, sad but uh, well it's just the way things happen i guess indeed so anything else on that one uh, nope, I think we've uh, talked about enough. I think we'll be coming back on this because I am expecting some, I guess, legislation or some other uh, initiative to start yeah, from here. Yeah. So I do think we'll be back with this later. This state. will continue to rumble on without a doubt. But uh, let's continue with you telling us how we're doing it all wrong. Yeah, so so the, the title of the article, as Yong wanted me to say it, is <laughs> Big Data Tech, Hadoop and Spark Get Slow Start in Enterprise. And when my, Dave says that, my, he says... My version of the title is uh, is basically everyone is still doing it wrong. <laughs> now, this is this feels like an article that's just been recycled from six months ago, 12 months ago, two years ago, three years ago. And, you know, some of the keywords have changed, but the, this article could well just be copy and pasted. Well, the dates and, uh, have I'm changed sure it wasn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, the, the dates have changed. Some of the technologies have swapped around, but this is just a copy-paste article. And I, I apologize to the author, Jessica Davis. I'm sure she's written this with her heart and soul in it. But it just... The, the core of the story is, you know, lots of people are still not realizing their return on investment. Their platforms are... Their big data platforms are, you know, failing to deliver to expectations, it goes on and on and on, and uh, they 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 also dig up the tired old trope of oh Spark or Hadoop, um, <laughs> and I'm not even going to dignify that with a response. But it Come just on, she gives a, a perfect definition of both. No, no, yes, she it doesn't. does at a very simple level. No. I'm quoting: one of them works on disk, and the other one in memory. Oh God! If I'd known that, I mean, my my life is yeah. so much easier now. Yeah, yeah, of course course um by the way for anyone listening that's not quite sure yon is being sarcastic me um <laughs> so i, I just uh, this this article is just ah oh god i wish people would stop just spinning there everything's everything's going terribly and i know that that's what uh, i mean maybe it is just clickbait i hope not but a lot of organizations uh, yeah. i talk to are doing really, really well. Yeah. They are making money. They are saving money. They're doing both with their big data platforms. 
And, and so, actually, it's gone above just that. It's also doing things that they couldn't be doing if they didn't have these exactly. softwares. I mean, certain things you just cannot do with traditional infrastructure. Yeah. And yes, that doesn't mean that you make things that exist better. And I guess sometimes the business cases they put forward are going to save billions of dollars by doing it with Hadoop. Uh, no, that's not how you have to look at it. This should just be cost of business and make new services, make new value. That's what businesses should do, not save stuff. Yeah. But that's not sarcastic, sorry. <laughs> no, well, so, yeah, I'm just, I'm just, I, I find this article very frustrating and mm. I wanted to share my frustration. And yeah. Now I have, and now we don't need to talk about it ever again until the next time the article gets copy-pasted well, with some new data and new tech. Well, there is one thing that I do agree with at the beginning, actually, in this, where she says that 70% of the deployments will fail to meet cost savings, blah, 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 due to skills and integration challenges. And that is something that I do think is relatively correct because skills in this uh, area are still hard to find, good skills, good yep. skilled people. So I can really believe that um, a lot of people try to bypass the knowledge curve by going to some prepackaged black box solution that claims to use Hadoop or Big Data under the hood and still doesn't work because you need to have more of an intimate knowledge about this whole Big Data thing. If you compare it with using a database, for example, it's a database. You don't care, basically, if it's a SQL server or a MySQL or Postgres. Yes, there are differences, but even if you don't know the differences, you can still pretty much work with them. It's a lot harder in this space, I think. Skills really matter. Yeah. And uh, integration challenges, yes, but uh, tell me one project that doesn't have integration challenges. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. As I say, I'm sure we'll see this article again in six months' time with a slightly different title, some different some different tech, and some different dates on it. Hey, as long as they update the dates, they have done their due diligence. <laughs> <laughs> that was sarcasm again. <laughs> okay. Moving on. Moving on. Uh, oh God, tell I us, lost tell my, us about, my tell us about some. Tell us about some Hadoop three. Uh, Hadoop 3, Hadoop 3. Oh, yes. Oh, I, I, I like this one. This was a, a, a stroll down memory lane. It's from uh, Mark Litwinchik. I hope I spelled that correctly on his own blog. Called Hadoop 3 Single Noted Stall Guide. And uh, I felt 10 years younger again because when I was 10 years younger, I actually did this. Because he goes into pretty much detail on how you can install, download from the Apache website, uh, ACFS, Spark, Hive, and Presto, I think, and install yeah. it and do it all by hand. And this day and age, a lot of people haven't done this, haven't really gone through this. I mean, when I started working with Linux at the beginning, I actually went to Gentoo. Why? Because Gentoo made you compile your own Linux kernel. And there's a lot of these things that are category under the label, do it once and never again. Yeah, <laughs> this was Linux one of them. Scratch was mine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's nice. It's a, if somebody hasn't done this yet and you want to just play around with this, it's a single node install, so it's not at all meant for production or anything like that. It's more of having a bit of more of a, 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 a feeling on how this thing works under the hood. Because if you're used to Ambar, your navigator, and all the nice GUIs on top of the, the, the solutions, yeah, there's a lot, a lot of stuff going on in the ground there. So it's just a very nice, uh, very readable write-up. And I haven't tried it out myself, but I did, I did read through it, and it does look complete and should, yeah, it should end up with something that's usable at least. So if you've never done this before, uh, I mean, have a try, have have some fun with it. 
If you have done this before, however, don't get, uh, get uh, how do you say that, uh, don't get fooled. It's still the same slog as it used to be. And there are some easier alternatives these days. And I want to sp- uh, specify the Sandbox from Hortonworks and the Quick Start VMs from Cloudera. Yep. I'm going to put uh, links in the show notes. The big advantage here is it kind of gives you the same one node install, let's say, but you're able to really keep up with new versions, even with preview versions. Because if you're going to do the whole install from Apache, it's going to take you a lot longer to get up and running. And once you've done it once, you kind of been there, done that. <laughs> yeah, and also you've got you've got you know cloud-based solutions where you know one-click deploy of an, an entire deep cluster. So. Uh, yeah, but then you get a whole deployed cluster, which is also going to be more expensive. Of course. And if it's just... But also more flexible. Um, <laughs> yeah, but then again, you will be having one of those finished solutions where the sandboxes... I've got a lot of experience with the Hortonworks sandboxes because I used to work at, at Hortonworks. I have less experience with Cloudera's Quick Starts, but I'm assuming they're the same thing. Uh, there's a lot of preview stuff in there. Things that's going to be in the next version of the distribution that's coming and if you go to the cloud on uh, Amazon Azure or or, or, or Google you will get the polished distribution let's say so it will give you less of a future look into the new things that are coming yeah both 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 options are always available but yeah yeah completely as you say there's there's always there's some there is something satisfying about building something from scratch but it's probably something you'll only need to do or you'll only want to do once well, I think everybody should do it once, mm-hmm. just to have some, I mean, respect for those poor programmers that are actually building all this nice stuff around it. Uh, but yeah, he should. It, it's just something it's not feasible to maintain this. And actually, coming back to your article, uh, some of the, not recently, but some of the projects that I have seen fail was because they were insisting on doing it all directly, compiling themselves from the source code on GitHub and stuff. Yeah. And you, yeah, I mean, uh, Hortonworks and a Cloudera, and I'm, uh, I'm not sure if MapR is still doing this, actually spend a lot of people, are, it's their daily work, day in, day out, to make these things integrate and work together nicely. You can't hope to do that as a small or medium sized company. For who Hadoop is not your main business. Anyway, I thought it was a fun, fun article. article. <laughs> Indeed. How's the time? Yep, we're coming up on that half hour mark again. Do you have anything else to talk about? I, I think we've probably got time for one of your last little uh, messages of open source wisdom. Uh, e- yeah, it's a bit of a, uh, how do you call that? Uh, it's uh, the Dutch phrase, I know, but what's the English phrase? It's a public announcement bulletin, perhaps. <laughs> Press release. Uh, well, no, no, I'd say it's for more for community. I'm doing a community announcement, a community service here. Okay. Because it's a press release from Elastic, who's yeah. uh, been a couple of weeks ago, I guess, have been putting some uh, press releases out about their opening up XPAC, their open sourcing XPAC. And that's good, of course. I mean, open source, we like open source, that's great. But the uh, just just quickly, XPAC for those that aren't familiar oh, yeah. with it is essentially it's it's the the security layer on top of Elasticsearch. So if you want to um, apply sort of kerberization or security policies or um, things like the monitoring uh, that sort of thing to your Elasticsearch, you need XPAC. Please continue. 
Well, the idea is basically that you have Elasticsearch is open source, but the whole enterprise readiness uh, shell around it, that's what that's their paid product, which you can uh, purchase on top of your Elasticsearch. And so apparently they've open sourced this, but as always, the fine print is interesting. And I'm not going to make a value statement here. I'm just going to read from the article and finish with that. We are creating a new XPack folder in each of the repositories on GitHub that are licensed under the Elastic EULA, which allows for some derivative works and contribution. So I think this is open source with some context around it. It is also... um, So if you click on one of the links there where it talks about although things are open source, um, there is now a free license tier. It does actually kind of show you um, some of the things that are included or not included in that basic free license. Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah, things that have and always will be maybe in XPack doesn't necessarily mean you'll get access to them even with the now free license because mm. it's open source. So yeah, but apparently yeah, they do put all the code the out detail. there. It's it's a bit of a fuzzy statement. Uh, if anybody from Elastic is uh, listening to this, and you want to give us more information? Yeah, you know where we are. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Indeed. Anyway, just wanted to throw that out there. Um, well, that's all for me. Yeah, and I think that's all about, about all the time we have for today. Hope you enjoyed the serving of bite-sized big data news. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode, uh, which will be our summit preview session. Mm-hmm. Until then, please go to www.roaringelephant.org where you can find more information, including a feedback form. You can also follow us on Twitter using the at Hadoopcast tag and contact us by email on podcast at roaringelephant.org with any thoughts, comments, criticisms, and other feedback. Until then, my name is Dave. And my name is John. And we'll see you next week.